the ending of a retreat can bring up a lot of emotion, all different kinds of emotion. Some of you might be feeling that, although some of you might be feeling that liberation is the end of the retreat. (laughs) On one of my earlier retreats when I was in about 24, um, a man got up at the very end and he stood up and he said, the Dharma has ruined my life. (laughs) And then he sat down and that was all he said. And I thought about that a lot. (laughs) It has ruined your life in a good way, (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) You know too much now. You can't pursue fame, fortune, with the same unconsciousness that you did before or that the rest of the world does. Sometimes I used to feel like Um, being a Dharma practitioner in the world was like swimming upstream. Like we're the salmon that have to go upstream. We have to do it. It's not an easy task, but we do it anyway. It's a little bit like the matrix. You might be asking yourself at this point, why, oh, why did I take the blue pill? (laughs) But since you've taken the blue pill, then the big question is how to make use of it. So tonight the talk is about spiritual fitness. How to stay spiritually fit in daily life given that you have taken the blue pill. So the retreat is a little bit like boot camp where we're getting spiritually fit. It's kind of easy because we're all together and there's nothing else to do. And in a way it's not like Maybe on boot camp you lose weight. Well, this is not about weight loss. It's about hate loss, this retreat. (laughs) And the big question with any boot camp is how do you continue that into your life? It's one thing to do it in this setting. It's another, how do we continue the, the greed, hatred, and delusion loss in daily life? You may have noticed that when you were being silent and spiritual and all this week, that the minute you opened your mouth, something like tragic happened. (laughs) You thought you were silent and spiritual, but the truth was your ego was outside the hall here doing (laughs) push-ups. It was getting very spiritually fit while we were getting silent. So it's not necessarily bad news, but the idea is, okay, so your ego is constantly working out, So we have to be working out too. We have to be creating spiritual fitness. Otherwise, you know, when we are not spiritually fit, like when we're not physically fit, difficult things happen. We we say things we don't want to say. We um, get in situations that are unethical that we don't really want to be in. And the great thing about spiritual fitness is that, unlike physical fitness, it really helps everyone when you're spiritually fit. I've been working for a number of years recently in a dialysis, kidney dialysis center, and it's very high pressure. And recently there's been a lot of really difficult things going on um, in, a legal, uh, in a battle with Kaiser, a large insurance company. So there's been a lot of stress, and um, one of the workers there told me that she rested in my calm 
And the truth is I'm not a calm person, <laughs> but I was using my spiritual skills in that situation. I, I really utilized them and other people felt it and it affected other people. But with spiritual fitness, there's a caveat. We're only doing it one day at a time. You know, who's the person in the room with the longest meditation experience? This is a koan. Who do you think it is? It's the person that got up earliest this morning. <laughs> because your practice is only one day in time. So it probably was Sister Virignani. <laughs> so she gets up at 3 a.m. She's the most longest practice experience. <laughs> So besides this boot camp, what do we need to do in our daily lives? How do we maintain a spiritually fit state of mind in all circumstances? There are three parts to fitness. There's bhavana, sila, and dana. Bhavana being the practice part, sila being the morality, or taking care with our life and what we do, and dana being generosity or service. But the overall arching aspect of all these parts of being spiritually fit is knowing your intention. So remember that intention that you had at the beginning of the retreat? Maybe making contact with it right now, remembering what it was. Maybe it's changed a little since you started talking. Maybe it hasn't. But connecting in with your body What's your intention as you begin to shift into daily life practice? Reconnecting with that intention. Setting that intention in motion. And just letting it go. The great thing about intentions is you don't have to shepherd them. Intention is important because it's like setting a course on a boat. You got to know where you're going, what you're aiming for. It's not that you micromanage the intention, but you have a sense. In Hawaii, uh, the visionaries, the, the visionaries were the navigators. And the Polynesians, when they would sail somewhere, they would not only use the stars and the currents as navigational tools, but they would use their vision and their intention. Even if they'd never been to Tahiti, where they might be going, they would have a sense, a felt sense in their body of where they were going. They would have a vision. And that would guide them equally as the stars and the currents. So this is very important in our practice this intention that you set in motion. The Buddha said that all action rests on the tip of intention. So the intention is at the pinnacle, really. Everything comes from there. So know what your intention is to be spiritually fit. Know where you're aiming for. So you can align with that intention. So bhavana, the first part, the practice. 
know what your bottom lines are. You know, it might be unrealistic to think you're going to go back home and sit two hours a day every day now for the next year until you come back on this retreat. A lot of times we try that and we fail. And then we just give up totally. So what's your bottom line? For a while, my bottom line was one moment of mindfulness a day. I knew I could do that. And that's better than a day of no mindfulness, right? So maybe that's your bottom line. Then it became five minutes of sitting a day. And just getting in the sitting posture. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It's that we show up and just give it a try. Anthony Trilupi said, a small daily task, if it is be really daily, will beat the labors of a spasmodic Hercules. So don't try and be a spasmodic Hercules with your practice. And I find, and this is just personally, that I need to um, do my five minutes, and sometimes it's longer, maybe 20 minutes, depending on the day. Right, I, I have to do it before I even get out of bed, because the minute, even if I get out of bed to go to the bathroom, it's like there's the computer, <laughs> or there's something to eat, and then I never get back to their practice. So definitely, you know, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, those are often good times. A daily sitting practice is very, very hard to do. And if you struggle with it, definitely not to judge yourself. I've had many teachers tell me that they don't have a daily sitting practice. It's a very hard thing to do. And to tell you the truth, I lived in a retreat center for many years, for like 10 years, because I couldn't do a daily sitting practice. And I knew if I lived in a retreat center, I'd have to. (laughs) And it took, um, after I left IMS, it took many, many years before I was able to have a daily sitting practice. But it was only because I set the intention in motion. And one day, it took. In addition to a sitting practice and mindfulness, one moment of mindfulness a day, a heart, some kind of heart practice, nurturing that wet quality. I talked about the metta being a wet quality of heart. And really, heart practice can take on, it could be compassion. Uh, I just started, a, a, well, a few months ago, a gratitude email group where some friends of I, we all um, email each other gratitudes every day or semi-daily. And it's just really beautiful to, to receive gratitudes and to send them off to your friends. Some of the gratitudes, uh, just a couple recently, uh, one friend sent me saying, today I am grateful for Vermont. I'm grateful for not buying the hype. I'm grateful for knowing what is stupid. I'm grateful for the drawings my granddaughter gives me today a fish with multicolored spots. My friend in Australia writes, today I'm grateful for the whole blooming lot, even if I don't like it. (laughs) Another friend wrote, today I'm grateful for my thrift store rollerblades. I'm grateful for people in adverse conditions who stay positive. I'm grateful for courage. I'm grateful for the earth. 
So if you have an inclination to start an email gratitude group, it's a profound practice. The second part of spiritual fitness, the sila part, I really like to think of as cleaning your house. And one way to, one angle to look at that is So you know your intention, right? Does your running commentary, the running commentary of your mind, (coughs) does it support your intention or not? (laughs) It's kind of shocking to see. (laughs) Oh my God, I have an intention to be one, right? Let's say, but my commentary is about judgment constantly. (laughs) So see about getting your commentary in alignment with your intention. So cleaning house might be for you, everybody, it's different. It might be following the precepts, not killing, not stealing, not lying, being careful with our sexual energy, not taking, doing intoxicants. Taking the one, sometimes people take a precept that's the most difficult and try that. Usually that's the speech one, as you have all noticed in the last few hours. Cleaning house, it's not about, you know, we talk about enlightenment. So cleaning house is about looking at all the ways that we're in darkened. How are we in darkened? What's impeding your spiritual connection? If you've got an obsession going on, something that's calling your name, whether it's a person, a food, a substance, whether it's fear, whether it's blame, it's going to be hard for you to connect with the spiritual fitness. It's going to be hard for you really to do your practice because you're paying homage to the obsession. So just looking at that, not with judgment, but just like, what calls your name more than the spiritual practice calls your name? What do you take refuge in? Are you taking refuge in fear? Deepak Chopra says, consciousness shrinks to fit. So what we're involved with, our consciousness shrinks to fit that. So if we're taking refuge in in a person or a substance, it shrinks to fit that. If we're taking refuge in fame, money, and power, it shrinks to fit that. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. If we're taking refuge in the Dhamma, it expands to fit that. Cleaning house is about also about doing what's difficult. We really live in a culture that shrinks away from doing the difficult things. We've got poor impulse control. We want somebody to blame every time we feel discomfort. And we're a very high anxiety culture. <laughs> it doesn't make a good match without mindfulness. <laughs> I actually read something recently um, that kind of shocked me. 
excuse me, Jonathan Davidson, MD, in 2003, when he analyzed pooled data on the severity of anxiety in population samples from the early 1950s to the 1990s, he found that anxiety levels have grown more severe over the past 40 years. By the 1980s, otherwise normal children were scoring higher than child psychiatric patients from the 1950s. So we're up against something difficult. It's really what we're learning here is being willing to be with the difficult thing. In Hawaii, they have a pigeon saying that says, try wait, try wait. You know, one test of how well you are to be able to be with difficult things is, you know, when your computer is slow. <laughs> what do you do? That's a, that's a practice in and of itself. <laughs> You go into a tantrum. <laughs> it's that willingness to also do the difficult thing is to unhook from suffering where you see it. When you're creating a problem, look and see what your part is or where you can, if you're suffering, where you can unhook as simple as that. About a month ago, uh, somebody that I know, um, I'd been having an email exchange with somebody that I knew, and um, all of a sudden I got one of my emails back, um, and it was stacked up with several emails, and it, and it said, oh my God, I'm so sorry I said that about you. I meant to just send it to her, and it ended up being CC'd to you. I, I'm just so sorry. <laughs> so, but it was stacked, you know, because Gmail does that, and I couldn't see what the email was, the offending email. <laughs> and I just sat there for a while, and I thought, hmm, okay, so I have a choice here to open it up and to see what she said. And I just sat there for a while, and I thought, Okay, if I look at it, will it really do any good at all? I really wanted to see. <laughs> I was very curious. But I realized it would create no good at all. It would make her feel bad. I mean, she already felt bad. It would make her feel bad. It would make me feel bad. There was just no good that would come of it. So I just, I just hit the delete button. And then one of my friends said, well, you know, it's still in your trash. <laughs> but, you know, once you've let it go, it doesn't matter. And it was so beautiful to be able to write her back and go, you know what, don't worry about it. I didn't even look at it. But there's that moment where we don't want to do the difficult thing. Similarly, where I work, I mentioned that... Um, the kidney center I work in is at in this kind of difficult situation with this insurance company, and we've been having these public hearings where patients that I've worked very closely with are testifying against us and just saying really difficult things to hear that often aren't true. And th these hearings are like these packed rooms, like for four and five hours of testimony. And to hear people that I love saying things um, that are hurtful 
it was so painful for me. And the first set, we've had like four, four different hearings. And the first set, I just was really angry and felt so betrayed. But then the second set, I, I realized, you know what? I'm just going to pray, send metta prayers for these people. So every time somebody got up and they were saying hurtful things, I just was sending them metta the whole time. And it totally changed my relationship to what was happening and to them. It was so much easier. But it wasn't, at first, it wasn't the thing I really wanted to do. I wanted to feel angry. The metta prayer really was made a difference. If you truly want a practice of cleaning house, just pretend that you are on a reality TV show every moment of your life and that the cameras are following you around. If you have a problem following the precepts, what would it be like if a million people were watching everything you said and did? <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, I take that on for a day sometimes. It's really fun. <laughs> How would you really be when your computer was slow? <laughs> So uh, the last part of this spiritual fitness is uh, its service. It, it's seen that um, the me is we, the I is we. It's really shifting our orientation. And part of what I do every day for my spiritual fitness is I take refuge every day. And I really take refuge. I don't just think about it. Sometimes I actually get on my knees and bow and just say, you know what? My mind is insane. I don't know how to manage my day. I don't know what I'm going to do. Please help me. Buddha Dharma Sangha, please help me in this day today. And sometimes I have to do it all day long. And I have to do it every day as part of my five minutes. I get on that cushion and I ask for help. Because we can't do it alone. It's better to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha than our own minds and ego. And I find that this practice of daily just asking for refuge, asking for support from the Buddha Dharma Saga, it gets me out of this sense that I'm doing it, my mind, my control, me, mine, and all of that stuff, which creeps in, doesn't it? As you've seen in the last few hours. I heard a a little anecdote about um, we're like six million ants on a log that's barreling downstream, and each one of us thinks that we're driving the log. <laughs> that's how insane our minds get. And you could try this practice right now. You know, you might be thinking about your retreat and you're worried about losing what you got on retreat, right? Or maintaining it or something. So what if you just, you know, moved it out of the realm of you controlling it and you just gave it away? Okay, whatever happens, whatever insights I had on the retreat are not my business anymore. 
Don't make them maintaining your retreat your business. Just give it to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha to do with it what they will. How does that feel? A lot easier, huh? Carrying the burden of all those insights. Bishop Desmond Tutu had a really nice way of um, talking about relating to this taking refuge. He actually used the word God because somebody asked him how his relationship with you know, taking refuge and God has changed through the years. His response was, I've learned to shut up more instead of approaching God with my shopping list. I have no need to do that anymore. He added, now it's like sitting in front of a warm fire. You don't have to be smart or anything at all. You just sit there and are warmed by the fire. The Buddha was a good example of spiritual fitness. He knew his intention. He took action. He cleaned house when the armies of Mara came. He worked with them. He practiced the precepts for many lifetimes, actually. And then in the final hour, when it got really intense, he reached down and he touched the earth and asked for help. And actually, sometimes the earth is referred to as Dhamma, that which upholds us. So he touched the Dhamma. He took refuge. He knew he couldn't do it alone. So he did this thing of, Yes, I'm doing this, I'm taking action, I'm setting my intentions, and please help. And when the moment after he touched the earth, that's when he woke up. It wasn't an I thing, it was a we thing. And after he woke up, he did Donna and generosity and service. Mother Teresa describes it in a really beautiful way of what you've been doing, starting with silence all the way to service. She says, the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service. The fruit of service is peace. It all starts with the silence. I don't really know a lot about service. I've been learning. There's a lot. There's so much to learn. And really, I find that the more that I find, I feel that we factor versus the I factor, service comes easier and easier. It's kind of like the internet. You're, you know, there's this, this big net. Somebody called it the inner net the other day. <laughs> that sense that you know, you're putting things in and you're getting things back and what you put in shapes the internet and then the internet shapes you back. And it's just this mutual system of like when we give, 
it affects something else and then it comes back to us and it's this big matrix really. I really saw this in a beautiful way. Um, I lived at a place called Llama Foundation in northern New Mexico for a couple summers and one of my friends was a that lived there was a potter. She also did tea ceremony which is his own kind of spiritual practice and um, she was uh, she had all these amazing tea bowls that she'd collected over many many years from different potters and uh, beautiful tea bowls and um, when people would come they would admire her tea bowls and one of her friends came one day and really admired her tea bowls a couple of her favorite tea bowls and she was like wow I'd really like to give them to her but I really like those tea bowls I do not want to give them to her and so she just struggled and struggled and she just realized okay I'm just going to take the plunge and give it to her so she gave her her two bowls and it was very very hard and then a week later um, a forest fire came and burned everything at Lama to the ground, including her hut with all her tea bowls. And right after the fire, her friend came up the mountain and gave her her two tea bowls back. And she said to me, it's only because I gave them away that I have them now. She had kept them, they would have been burned. It's a great lesson in that interconnection. So part of your learning is to know what your particular service piece is. We each are a facet in the jewel of the Dharma. So what's your facet? What are you meant to do here? To know what that is. And the good thing is that life and the Dharma has an intention for you. And in a way, all you need to do is just listen and feel and follow it. It's no accident that you're all here right here now. So knowing, what are, how are you meant to serve? That's why you took the blue pill. <laughs> so we could, each one of us, to relieve suffering. And it doesn't matter how you do it. You can do it in a small way, in a big way. You might be, you know, like um, Sean Penn, he's doing these camps in Haiti. It might just be, you know, maybe your way that you release suffering is you teach one person meditation in this life. No part is too small. It's just a matter of showing up and being used by the Dharma. More and more, that's what I see. It's I mean, just used by the Dharma. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Just showing up. And the only thing I ask you is just don't give up. 
keep coming back. Keep coming back, keep coming back here, keep sitting, keep going to your groups. I'd like to close with a, uh, an example that we've done hundreds of times here in this hall, or in this retreat. It's a perfect example of what we're doing here. It's about how you, it's about taking your shoes off to come into the hall. So what we do when we come into the hall is we take our shoes off. We put down the burden. We enter this sacred space here, shoeless, empty-handed, like a child. We enter the sacred here. And we stay here for a while and we drink it in. But the sacred's not meant to be forever. So we get up and we decide to live, go back out in life. We go back out and we humbly put our shoes back on and we serve. And we do it again and again, taking off our shoes, putting down the burden, coming back into the hall, drinking in the sacred, getting back up, humbly going back out into the world to serve over and over and over again. We're not meant to stay here forever in this hall. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.